I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. JBR Capital has sponsored the Intercooler podcast for several months now. You've probably heard me talk about the company before. In that time, I've come to really understand what it is that makes JBR Capital different to other car finance companies. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I'd say it's this. Car finance is all JBR Capital does. might sound like a minor detail, that, but in fact, it's really important. It means JBR Capital has a profound understanding of the car marketplace and of car buyers, an understanding that other finance companies could only hope to have. In fact, that very focused approach is exactly why the company was started in the first place. We recently had Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital, on the podcast, episode 106, if you want to go back and listen. And he explained that he started the company when he realised that general finance lenders actually didn't understand cars or car buyers particularly well at all. So he spotted that gap in the market and he founded JBR Capital to fill it. So before you buy your next car, be it a supercar, sports car, classic car, a hypercar or a luxury car, even if it's a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. And it really helps us if you tell them that the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 113 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Andrew, um, well, we've both been driving a couple of interesting new sports cars, both with six-cylinder engines, both with manual gearboxes. So we're going to be talking about those. But we're also going to be talking about how many more times we're going to do that um, between now and the petrol and diesel ban in 2030. Because there is a sort of final throes of the combustion engine sports car thing going on at the moment isn't there yeah there is uh, particularly when combined with a uh, with a footwell with three pedals in it um, yeah increasingly rare um so yeah we'll uh, we'll, we'll definitely look forward to talking about that um yeah. yeah the the cars are the manual gl supra um and the lotus amira you know the the most important car Lotus has launched since the Elise in 1996, so in over a quarter of a century. Um, and I've been having a play in that on road and on track. Um, this podcast is going out on June the 7th because that's the day the Amiro embargo lifts. Uh, look forward to talking about it. Yeah, interesting because, car. Because it'll go out after the, the embargo. We can, um, you can tell us exactly what you think about it. Um, there are no no driving impressions embargoed after that point. So, yeah, I mean, let's just sort of reflect a little bit more broadly. Um, how many more petrol-powered manual sports cars are likely to arrive after this date? I mean, I know, I, one I can pull off the top of my head is the, the new BMW M2 that we'll see very shortly. Um, that will have yep. a manual gearbox option. Um, yep. But that aside, I mean... It might be that that's the last one, or maybe there's you know some niche thing that I've forgotten. But the issue is, okay, so is there, there going to be a is there going to be time for a Gen two 
GT3 and, you know, presumably there'll be manual options in all the Gen 2 911s, but they're not really new cars, are they? They're kind of like midlife facelifts of old cars, aren't they? So That's it. So, were you, yeah. yeah, I mean, Porsches. And are there going to be petrol-powered um, versions of the new Cayman and Boxster? Or are they purely electric? I don't know if you know that off the top of your head. Uh, I don't. My my, no, it's more than a guess. My, it's, it's almost an understanding. I think what they will do, and certainly what they're going to do with the Macan, um, is they'll run the two side by side. So there is an all electric Macan coming quite soon, um, which is why you can't buy a Macan Turbo at the moment. Strangely enough, because the Macan, the new Macan Turbo, is going to be all electric. Um, but it's. Um, yeah, so the, um, and what? So you'll be able to buy both for a while. So you'll have an all-new car, which will be you know related in name alone to you know other Macans, and maybe they'll do that with Caymans and Boxsters. Maybe they will have you know an all-new uh, electric architecture, and there will be um, electric Caymans and Boxsters, and there will be petrol-powered Caymans and Boxsters until you can't have petrol-powered Caymans and Boxsters anymore. I, mean, I can't help thinking that there are going to be some logistical issues with that kind of approach because I presume the same kind of production line. Is, I don't imagine, I don't know, that you can run, you know, full EVs on one platform um, down the same line as, you know, ICE sports cars um, on a completely different platform. I don't know. Um, it, maybe you can run them down the same line, but it would struck me as being, if they do need each need their own line, I suspect that there will be production difficulties, which mean that sooner or later... Um, the petrol powers have to sort of give way to their um, to their electric offspring. So, I mean, we talked about this, didn't we, before we came on um, on air? We sort of talked about the last chance saloon. Be good if these were saloons, wouldn't it? Be great, anyway. <laughs> but um, okay. um, I, I, it, it does have that sort of end of days feel about it, doesn't it? You know, you do sort mm. of feel that, and, and I think there is going to be a market. Um, and we saw, didn't we, how quickly all those uh, GR86s, the 400 GR86s that come into the UK, how quickly they got snapped up. Um, mm. And I think people are starting to think, well, you know, blimey, um, it really is now or never. You know, it's true. And maybe I want one of these things. Uh, and maybe, you know, if I don't do something about it now, I'm never going to be able to do something about it. I mean, there may even be some people who are thinking, actually, these things might be quite canny um, investments to have in the long time. I don't know, but uh, I think there are lots of reasons why these cars are very interesting right now, and the, and the most persuasive of which being that, you know, really not that long from now, you're just not going to be able to buy them at all. Mm. Yeah, it's true, sadly. Um, and it does seem as though there are probably a few more um, purely petrol-powered Porsche sports cars coming before the the ban on such things in 2030. They have to be hybrids after 2030 and then purely electric after 2035. Um, so, but Porsches aside, then I don't know, maybe there'll be nothing. And the issue is, okay, we may have, uh, well, just over seven years until that ban kicks in, but the time it takes to develop a new car, um, you, it needs to be on sale for probably six or seven years to recoup the costs the investment yeah. it took to put exactly. it into production and develop it. Exactly. There isn't enough time anymore. So unless No one's going to be launching announced. new petrol cars in 2027. They're just not going to be doing no. it. No, they won't. It's, it's, it's just not worth it. So unless um, a car has been announced already, it's probably not going to arrive ever. And that means the list really is quite short, isn't it? That's going to come around very quickly indeed, I would suggest. But you're right. I mean, there are there is this feeling that people are making hay while the sun shines. I mean, those 430 GR86s allocated for the UK, as you've said, snapped up in 90 minutes. Um, it's not many cars, but they went bloody quickly, didn't they? And we know anecdotally that new Range Rover buyers, many of them are choosing the big V8 one because they can and because it's available and it won't be for very long. Um, so there is definitely, you know, across different sectors of the market, this feeling that people are enjoying it, enjoying combustion engines while they still can. Anyway, we know there's an M2 coming. We know there'll be more Porsches on the way soon. It's not all over, is it? But it's not going to go on for a great deal longer. No, um, but but it's, it's, it's not all over, but we're in... I'm just trying to think of some metaphors I can mix. You know, we're in the you know the home straight. It's the final yeah. act. It's you know yeah. they're coming on for encores. That's what they're doing, isn't it? It's just yeah. kind of like yeah, here we are, guys. Um, it's the sort of farewell tour, isn't it? I'm sorry, it I'm, is. going, I'm going crazy. <laughs> but it's all of those things, and so you know you, you have these great 
splurges of, of interest in these things because I think the farewell tour probably is the best way of talking about them. And people are, you know, people turn out to see bands they'd never bother going to see because they always think, oh, I'll catch them next time around. But if you mm. know there's not going to be a next time around, you're going to get out there and see them. And I think, I think that's what's going on now. Um, yes, it sort of makes you thoughtful, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it feels like it. Okay. So the one you've been driving is the Lotus and Mirror, the V6 yep. one. Um, yeah. The I don't think the four cylinder arrives until next year, does it? Um, uh, it's later this year. I mean, you, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, certainly certainly the, the, the first edition V6 has come first. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, so you and you drove the one with the manual gearbox. There is a the option of an auto, and it is an automatic gearbox. But you've been driving the manual, thankfully. Thank um, goodness. <laughs> so tell us a little bit a bit about it. You went to. Um, so I, went, I, I, did the, I did the sort of usual thing. Um, you know, I think Lotus were thinking of, I think there was a, at a time when they were going to do a sort of all singing or dancing launch for it. And actually they just thought um, it's a sort of Lotus thing to do to bring journalists not in, you know, by not ship them in by the hundred to some foreign destination, but just get them up. You know, I when I was there, it was me. There were no other journalists there. I had the car absolutely to myself for um a morning uh, a long morning uh i had i had the track to, completely to myself for the morning and i could go out and you know spend as much time as i liked on the roads um and actually you know you get to drive the car on the roads it was developed on uh you drive it on roads you drive it on track um and you know you don't have to share it with anybody else and <sighs> You actually get a really, really good idea, you know, a much better idea, frankly, than you'd ever get by going on some launch and having to go through some formal program. Um, and yeah, all I would say about the car, and it's important um, that whenever anybody reads about, you know, the Amiras um, that people will be writing about at about the time that this comes out, is that certainly the car I drove, my understanding is all the cars that all Genesis drove were not just pre-production units, but pre-pre-production units. So the car I drove had no functioning airbags. I know the uh, the quality of the seats and some of the bits of the dashboard weren't to the right um, standard. I know that the you know, the instrument lighting was 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 wrong and that sort of thing. But but what nobody said to me, and therefore I presume was right, nobody said to me that in any way was the car dynamically substandard. So from a dynamics point of view, and let's face it, that's what matters with these cars. I have no reason to believe that what I drove isn't exactly the same as what customers will drive. Um, and it's it's a really interesting car because obviously Lotus want you to think it's a completely new car, a brand new car. I think they call it. It's not. Um, but nor is it. Nor would it be doing it any justice at all to call it a sort of heavily facelifted Evora. I mean, the start place for the for the Amira was the Evora. Um, it still obviously has that Toyota V6 supercharged powertrain. It still goes through that six the same six speed gearbox. Still has the same wheelbase. Um, but pretty much everything else. So certainly, you know, the suspension, the steering, the brakes, um, all the sort of, you know, bits that, you know, make it go down the road and that's that they, they are all new. Obviously, the body is completely new. The interior is completely new. So I think, I think you can consider it to be a new car. Um, and in the main, it's really very good. Um, it's a difficult job, this, isn't it? Because, I mean, they have priced it right up against a Cayman. You know, so the car I drove, um, okay, it's a first edition, so it's one of those silly things that's got all the equipment on it. But I think the standard first, the, sorry, the standard manual V6 Amira will be about 65 grand. You know, and in that, in that region, it's, it's aimed straight at, um, a Cayman GTS with that wonderful four litre. Lovely, lovely six. car engine and i love as we know a lovely lovely car one of our very favorite cars um and you know that's a that's a tough thing to put yourself up against isn't it and you know what it it does a bloody good job okay now what it's not is the car that's going to blow the cayman out the water it's not that at all um it still feels it doesn't have that sort of and again, it may be that it's pre-production and that sort of thing, but I can only report as I find it doesn't have that sort of heft to it. It doesn't, you know, work quite as well in the way all the interior um, architecture functions. It's not as easy a car to live with um, 
as a Cayman. But, you know, people will excuse it that because it's a Lotus. I think the car looks amazing. It looks so expensive. And that, you know, that old three and a half litre Toyota V6, okay, it's quite blue colour compared to a, you know, a four litre flat six, isn't it? But you know what? It, it does the job. Okay, it doesn't spin quite so high and it doesn't make that sort of sweet, sweet growling noise, but it's, um, it's got way more torque, way much further down the rev range, um, than the Porsche engine and, it really gets up and goes. Um, so it's, you know, I don't begrudge its powertrain. There is that sort of chattery noise you get with that engine. And I can remember hearing that in Navoras and Exiges and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm very, very interested, and I'll get to this in a minute, um, to drive the four-cylinder car because I've got just got a funny feeling that might end up being the one to have. Um, but I'll, t- I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and, and then obviously, you know, this is a Lotus, so it's all about what it's like, um, on track and when you punt it down a decent road. The car I drove, so the two specs you can get, there's a touring and a sport specification. If you get the touring specification, um, you get Goodyear Eagle tyres on it. And Goodyear's, they've come on so far in recent year. I mean, we wouldn't even be talking about those. Um, but there, it's a really good tyre now. But you also get, you know, softer suspension on it. Um, or if you bought the Sport, then it comes with a Michelin Cup 2 on it and stiffer suspension. Um, and the car I drove was a touring car, so good years, soft suspension, but it also had an optional limited slip diff in it. Um, so that's the spec of the car I drove, and and it's lovely. It does that Lotus thing where it just you just sort of go down the road with the steering writhing gently through your hand. The body control is beautiful. It is so poised. They don't tie it down on its springs. They don't sort of make it stop moving. So it feels like a sort of racing car, because that'd be completely inappropriate. Um, it feels like a Lotus. It steers like a Lotus. Um, you know, it's still quite a heavy car. You know, it's heavier than a Cayman, which I was disappointed by. Mm, you know, how could you not surprising, isn't it? Yeah, it is, you know, and how, and I've done the mass every which way with options and not options and made sure that I'm comparing light with light, and I am. It's, you know, car for car, light for like, it is heavier than a Cayman. And that's actually whether you compare an i4 to a Cayman S or a V6 to a Cayman GTS. It's just, you know, the car is just heavier. Um, it's almost, well, it's not almost, yeah, it's not far off double the weight of an original Elise, mm. um, cool. to put it in another way. So, you know, it's a, it's a hefty old car for, you know, what is, you know, ultimately, you know, a, a, a mid-engine two-seat car which you'd you know, associate with being extremely light um, but you know it's, it must be if via aside it must be the heaviest lotus that they've ever made um but it, it disguises the weight very well um and i really really enjoyed punting it down the road um it was i mean some people are going to say oh it's the car the avora should have been and i've been kind of trying quite hard not to say that because it's actually that actually doesn't do any justice it's so far beyond the Evora in terms of its sophistication and ease of use, um, you know, the comparison isn't actually that helpful. Um, and on the, on the track, if I'm honest with you, I was a bit disappointed by it. Um, and I think, I think, I think, I, know, I think I know why. So A, it was the touring specification. So it wasn't on the track, track specification. It did, it rode the bumps and the curbs around the Hethel test track unbelievably well. I mean, ridiculously, weirdly well. It was good over those. I mean, you could effectively just straight line everything because it scarcely seemed to notice all that. And it's still, you know, it's completely passively sprung. There are no active dampers, um, anything like that. In fact, that's the reason they have to have two suspension specifications because they want to keep it pure, which I I admire. I'm not sure I've done it myself that way, but nevertheless. Um, But it understeers a lot. Um, And if you try to sort of boot your way out of that uh, with your right foot, then it oversteers a lot, um, more than, <laughs> more than you want. So you have to kind of learn its way. Uh, and if you do that and you're a bit more, uh, or a bit less ambitious with your entry speed and then you introduce the power more gently, you know, you can, you can get it to do what you want. You can get it, to, you, you, you can drift it because it's got the diff in it. Um, and it's very nice, but it didn't feel to me like a car that was particularly at home in that environment. Um, and I think, the large reason for that is the car I drove had the wrong specification. I think all that understeer was introduced by the diff, which, you know, I don't think many touring cars will have. Um, and what I would like to drive is either a touring car without the diff in it or a sports specification car with the diff in it. And I suspect in either case, 
they'd be better cars to drive. Um, but again, I can only, you know, that's the car they gave me. It's not what I asked for. It's just what I got. Um, and that's what I felt. So, yeah, so my jury's out on that. Um, so overall, you know, this car is not, okay, it's not today what I knew I'd find a way of getting in this in. Uh, an A110 was in, <laughs> in, was it 17 that came out? Uh, end of 17, the launch was, uh, yeah, 18. Yeah, really. so uh, it, it, it's not that. It's not like, you know, start again. Um, you know, all, 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 you know, things reset. This is a new level. It's not that at all. Um, it's a really credible, competent, enjoyable, admirable new Lotus one with a very difficult job to do because it's not only, you know, got to bridge the gap to its future, but it's also got to be the, you know, the last entry in that volume of Lotus's past, isn't it? You know, the last internally combustion engine car that Lotus will ever produce. And that's it. So that's the sort of final statement. Um, and it's a pretty good way to sign off. And if I sound less than completely knocked out by it, it's because I am. I wasn't knocked out by it. I thought it was a very good car. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, so I was impressed by it, but I wasn't completely bowled over by it. Um, so, you know, to me, it's one. It's a it's a, it's a car, and you know, whether Lotus was right or not right to launch the car before it was fully production ready, um, you know, I, I I can't say. But it was a car which kind of asked almost as many questions as it answered. Uh, and what I would like to do is spend a couple of days in a completely standard car with no options on it or a sports specification car with, you know, differential and everything else on it. And then I think we get a, I think I would then get a, a much clearer picture. So my jury is slightly out. I'm very positive about it. Um, I do think it's a good car, you know, waiting is two years long. I don't think that many people are going to be disappointed with it. Um, but yeah, watch this space. I think, I, th- I think there's, this story will run a bit longer. Uh, and just finally on the i4, which I haven't driven, I've just got a feeling that's going to be the one to have. Um, you know, it's only got, it's an interesting, with that engine, um, it's got, what, 420 horsepower in an A45S now? I think it's only 355 in the Amira. Um, the new C-Class, details of that, the new C63 AMG have been issued. Now, that's 670 horsepower, but that's got a hybrid. But even without it, that little two-litre engine is producing 470 horsepower in the C63 AMG. Okay, so, so that engine, which is going into the Amira, although it's only got 355 horsepower, we know it's good for 470 all by itself before you put a hybrid on it. So my guess is that when the V6 stops, which it will, because it won't pass Euro 7, and Euro 7 could be with us as close as 2025, my guess is that's what it's going to get. Um, and, there will, and, and there will be an Amira S, which will replace the V6, and it'll be the inline four turned up to 11. Um, with 400 and quite a few horsepower. And I think that's the way the range will go. I don't know any of these things. Lotus hasn't told me anything uh, like that, but that is that would strike me as being logical. And I just think that, you know, that smaller, little bit lighter engine, I think the, uh, the DCT, the double clutch transmission that will come with it will suit the car well. Um, and yeah, I just have a hunch that that might be, and it's also going to be a lot cheaper. Uh, it certainly is at the moment. Um, I've got a hunch that might be the one to have. Uh, although sadly, you will not be able to get it with a manual gearbox. Um, I think I'd better shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> that was comprehensive. Well, yeah, I mean, this is just the start, isn't it? It wasn't a production car quite. Um, yeah. You had half a day in it. There are other yeah. variants of the V6. There's a totally different engine and transmission that we're yet to try. I haven't been anywhere near the car. So I think we're going to have to continue talking about the Amira as time rolls by. Um, I just want to quiz you about some of the more sort of boring things about the car. Ingress, egress, cabin quality, that sort of stuff. Does it? But this is the the sort of frustration with the Evora: a high sill, big wide sill, little doors, yeah. difficult yeah. to get into and out of, and yeah. just um, a bit annoying every day. Yeah. Little bit, less so. Uh, I wasn't particularly put out by it uh, because, you know, I'm a big bloke and because I'm 150 years old, usually if these things are going to be troublesome, they'll trouble me before they trouble most people. Um, I wouldn't say that you could just sort of, you know, leap in and leap out, uh, you know, but good enough. Uh, and quality, I, I, I want to really reserve judgment on that because these were, as I say, these weren't, you know, um, 
pre-production cars these were pre-pre-production cars and i could tell you that you know there was the old, the old rattle here and the old fizz there but there is no reason in the world to think that they're going to make it into production and i and you can't i'm afraid judge a car which you've been told is you know several steps behind what the customers are going to get um until you drive a car that a customer is going to get yeah yeah i mean it, it i've sat in an, an a mirror at goodwood i've not driven one and it seems to me that this is the most ambitious Lotus interior yet. Yes. I mean, yeah. certainly with taken early Elise, for instance, it didn't really have. It had a bit where you sat. It didn't really have an interior as such. Not quite it? like that. <laughs> yeah, I know it sort of quite worked, like didn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, but it's not. But this is this is not that kind of car. What this no. this car is not in any way trying to replace the Elise or the Exige. This is their big senior you know expensive car isn't it um yeah and i hope that a replacement for the Elise will come in time um so yes it is but you know it's so much sophisticated more sophisticated than that but it doesn't work as well um you know and, and you have to compare it with you know what it's up against and it's up against a cayman you know and you know okay fine i know that you know lotus now has an awful lot of geely money behind it and thank goodness for that um but you know the infotainment and the way and, and and the way it all works it's just not up with where you know porsche which has access to the entire volkswagen um toy box to draw upon uh, and you couldn't expect it to be i don't think that matters very much because i imagine it's you know they're not trying to sell anything like those sorts of volumes and i think that because it's a lotus uh, and because they expect to get rewarded in other ways through the car's looks through its exclusivity through the way that it handles and that sort of thing i think that you know customers will be more than prepared to forgive it the fact that you know the navigation isn't as good as porsche navigation um because i don't think they would expect it to but it does need to be good enough and again you know i need to drive a production finished car before i can judge that definitively so um and i think i think as long as it is good enough i think i think it'll do well um you know it is sold out for two years um and you know when was lotus last sold out for two years so it's 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 encouraging um and you know as i say i i i wish it well but i, I want to spend more time on one. i want to drive an i4 i want to drive a production car i want to you know i just you know i just need more time in it mm. yeah and i look forward to having a go as well okay let's move on to the toyota gr supra manual yeah. Um, which I've been driving actually it was on the same event as the gr86 that I spoke about last week um you were talking about the access you had to the Amira up at Hethel. I yes. had the opposite. So we had only track um, and only six laps. Why did they do laps. that? <laughs> Why did they do that? McLaren used to do that with the LTs. And it, I just, you know, um, yeah. here's a car and there's a track. It's a road car. It's got number plates on it. Fine. You know, if it's, got, if it's meant to do some, yeah. you know, have some trackability, then fine. Have that as a component of what you do. But, I mean, it's just... Sorry. It's frustrating. It is frustrating. And I write in my written review of the car that I've only driven it in a setting it wasn't primarily designed for. Um, yes. And it's not designed for track, the, the GR Super. So I can't tell you everything I'd like to be able to tell you about the car. Um, but it's, it's an interesting thing. So you and I both did the original media launch three years ago now out of Madrid. Um, and I think we both came away from that. I don't know if underwhelmed is the right word or not quite as moved I mean, as we thought we would I, be. I liked it mm. right up until the moment I thought about, you know, you do this, you get in the car and you just drive it and you judge it on its own merits. And I thought it was, you know, I thought it was certainly a lot better than the Z4, um, uh, which it's obviously was created as part of a joint venture with BMW. Um, but then you have that thought don't you and you think about you think about the triple test don't you you think well what mm. rivals would i put this up against and you think well you put it up against a cayman and an a110 at which stage you think ah yeah maybe it's not that great after yeah. all <laughs> so i i felt more or less the same um what's interesting about the new manual is that this really is toyota responding to demand um sometimes you wonder if this is a spin but i quizzed a few of their people on this and i looked them in the eye and said, "Did you? Are you really responding to demand for a manual gearbox from the press, from customers, from sports car fans?" And they insist that it was a response to the demand. 
So it, it makes me think, you know, all those forum posts, all those articles, all those tweets <laughs> that people have put out over the three years demanding a manual car, they were not for nothing because here it is. Um, and we know that, or, okay, it, it adds, this adds credibility to, to that point. They've had to redesign the top of the transmission tunnel, relocate that BMW-sourced iDrive control to make room for a manual gear lever. If there was always a plan to offer a manual version, they probably would have designed it from day one to they accommodate a manual gear yeah. lever. Yeah. So they've had to do quite a lot of work um, to make space for it. And, and is it, I should know the answer to this, but is it, it's a mainstream model, they're not limiting it or? No, it's not limited, it's, it is a mainstream model. Um, and it's a, it's a ZF gearbox. It is used by other BMWs, but somehow the, the exact specification is unique to the GR Supra. Um, is it any good, the gearbox? Give me a moment, I'll come to that, because there are some other Sorry. changes that are equally as important if not more so, okay? And we know that car manufacturers rarely just twiddle their thumbs. You know, if a car's on sale for three years, they will make some upgrades to it during that time, whether they tell us about it or not. So the car has evolved, and they have made changes to the chassis and to the steering that they do talk about. So the dampers have been retuned. The steering, the electric steering, um, has been retuned as well. Um, And the rubber bushes in the front and rear anti-roll bars... That rubber is vulcanized now, and I've looked this up. That means it's treated at high temperatures to make it harder. Um, and so, you know, that is fine, detailed tuning that they're doing to try and make the car a bit more engaging to drive. It's made a huge difference. Okay, I've only driven the car briefly on track, but from the first corner onwards, it felt like a different car. And not just because I was changing gear myself, the steering so much clearer and sharper the body control is better um it just feels more cohesive it was enjoyable to drive on track in a way that the previous car wasn't as far as i'm concerned so i was amazed at what a difference those apparently minor chassis revisions made really significant as far as i could tell on track there are also and i will come to the manual gearbox shortly In other markets, there will be a model called lightweight. We won't get the lightweight model, but we will get the lightweight um, weight-saving measures, let's say, Um, which will be, essentially, that will be how a GR Supra manual will be configured in the UK as standard. Um, So that means, because it's a manual gearbox rather than uh, an automatic gearbox, you save something like 22 kilograms. Um, And as long as you don't add back in the powered, the electrically powered seats, you save another 16 kilograms or something. So it's close to 40 kilograms, the weight saving compared to, uh, you know, a a plushly specced automatic GR Supra. 40 kilograms, it's meaningful. It is meaningful. Um, what, this is kind of this confused me at the time, and it's confusing me now. The, they let us drive two versions of the Supra manual, um, one with the electrically powered seats, one without. And so, because they're both manuals, the the weight saving is only sixteen kilograms, not maybe twenty kilograms. But I swear I could tell the difference instantly. I swear the lighter one. Isn't it? I'm sure the lighter one felt different. Um, and I normally scoff when people say they can identify a minor weight saving like that. I just think it's nonsense. But honestly, I've, I drove both cars and I really, really felt like the one with the manually adjustable seats was sharper, keener, but were the, better but, but, controlled. But were, the, were the seats themselves the same? Did they have, Were they slightly firmer? Did they support you better? Did, they feel, did you feel more located? Did you feel more at home in the car as a result? They felt the same. They look the same. I think it's just the okay. upholstery that's different. Okay. Um, so I would, I would, I would just have the normal seats, the manually operated seats. I wouldn't have the electrically powered ones because it appears to make a big difference. It, I, yeah, that still confuses me. That, but as you say, we can only report as we find. So it, gearbox aside, it feels like a much more satisfying car. Um, I'm re- Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed driving it on track. It felt 
poised, really well balanced. It does the GR86 thing of just being super progressive at the limit. So you just toy with it. You just have fun with it as it's beginning to lose grip, doing as you please. And it's so friendly and benign. Um, So it was the first time I've really deeply, profoundly enjoyed driving a GR Supra. I'm looking forward very much to trying one again in the UK, um, on the road, because I think it feels like an altogether more enjoyable sports car. The manual gearbox then, it's really good as well. There have been other performance cars, sports cars recently, haven't there, that their manufacturers have sort of very proudly offered with a manual gearbox, and yet you drive one and the transmission is a bit unsatisfying. F-Type manual is a good example of that. Yeah, V12 Vantage um, And also yes. V12 S, absolutely. Yeah, very disappointing. And I've always said that I would far rather, far rather drive a car with a good paddle shift than a so-so manual. Um, but this isn't that. This is a really good manual. Good, direct, mechanical, short throw. Um, properly matched to the clutch pedal. Ratios feel right. It's got a shorter final drive, so you get good punchy acceleration. Um, it's, it doesn't feel like an afterthought. It really feels like they've applied the same standards, the same quality standards, the same rigor to its development. So it feels like it should always have been there, like it's like it belongs. Um, and so it's it's a very it, it makes the car that much more engaging, that much more enjoyable to drive. There's an auto blip that you can turn off. Um, so I I thought it's fantastic. I liked it a lot. Um, okay. So here's the question. Go on. Triple test time. (laughs) We're going to have to do it, aren't we? Well, yeah, but you'll have a view now, I bet. Are you going to be trading in your Alpine? I was surprised by the Super. Alpine, Cayman, Manual, GL Super. Well, I mean, I think the fact you're having to think about it says speaks volumes for it, because certainly with the automatic, I didn't have to give it a moment's thought. No, well, I, c- I can't give you an answer straight away. Um, okay, so, I'd have so to, it's I'd up have there. to give it some more thought. On. So it's, it's in that league. I've done six laps of a short circuit, but it feels like it might be. Um, so I was super, super impressed. Um, and we'll see. Yeah, I, I need to drive it again. We all need to, you need to drive one as well, and then we'll have that conversation. But I, I, I'm not sure I could see myself chopping in my car for one because. I actually don't particularly love the way the Supra looks, um, and I, you know, I just like the lightweight philosophy of my car. It's it just speaks to me. But I was amazed at how much I enjoyed driving this GR Supra on track. Um, so yeah, and I know it's a very different car to the GR86 in terms of price. It doesn't have those small but handy rear seats. Um, but lots of people will be upset that they didn't get a GR86. If you can afford it, have a look at the Supra. It is a it is a damn good car. Excellent. Should we leave that there? Yeah. The mirror, Supra, there we go. I just hope that we're surprised and we find ourselves driving many more petrol-powered manual sports cars. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's When's the next MX-5, Dune? That's a good point. So was it 2018 this one arrived? Something like that? Yeah, so, uh, so that'll be interesting, won't it? So if it's 2018, you'd expect the next one in sort of 25, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, so That's what are they going to do with that? What are they going to do with that? We will see. Are they going to bother I mean, maybe, doing a whole new one? Maybe with a car like an MX-5, which, you know, because it's a sports car, because it's got a largely recreational purpose, they, these sorts of cars often have longer lifespans, you know, as a result. So maybe they'll just push it. Maybe they'll just rather than yeah. develop a whole new model and have it only on sale for you know four or five years, um, maybe they'll just push it and it'll just keep going, um, and they won't replace it, or they'll replace it with an EV. Mm. Could well be, could well be. Or the, or they will, you know, or, the, or, or they'll get cute. And we mustn't, you know, we mustn't forget also that you know these these rules we're talking about are happen to be the UK rules. Um, but there are lots of other countries which are you know in a similar position, which is you know. No more purely petrol-powered cars or diesels um, by 2030 and no more hybrids by 2035. Um, and I can't see any of those dates being pushed back now. I think that politically it would be impossible to do that. 
Um, so yeah, it may be that actually the cars that we've got now, we're thinking, oh, what are their replacements going to be like? Maybe they just won't be replacements. Maybe they will just go straight from ISIS to EVs, uh, or maybe, you know, a company like Mazda might be, get a bit cute and think, well, actually, if we're going to replace it in 25 and we got until 35, uh, if we got a hybrid, then they'll put a little light hybrid something on it um, and extend it that way. I don't know. I don't mm. know. be interesting we'll to see. see. We'll see. Um, okay, let's move it on then. I know you wanted to talk about um, your experience hill climbing at Chelsea Walsh. Well, I barely dignify it with the term hill climbing, so that's certainly what <laughs> I did there. But uh, it's just, we haven't talked about, you know, I think we've probably talked about, you know, the odd car that we've skidded up the Goodwood Hill over the years and that sort of thing. But um, we don't sort of spend much time talking about sort of different sorts of motorsport. And so last weekend, um, because I, I had a relative who was going and I just wanted to go along and say hello. Um, and because it just sounded like fun and the weather was nice, I got in the caterham and toddled up to um, to Worcestershire and went to the Shelsley Walsh uh, hill climb course. You know, it is the oldest functioning motorsports facility in the world. It's older than you know, than Indy, it's older than, you know, Spa or Monza, it's the oldest functioning motorsport site venue in the world. And it's this, uh, I'm sure lots of you have seen insane videos of lunatics in ghouls and that sort of thing going up there in 23 seconds or whatever. Uh, but if you don't, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very narrow little country lane um, up which people pump these purpose-built, you know, 600 horsepower, you know, Formula One looking type cars. And absolutely everything else uh, you could possibly imagine. And what I loved about it uh, was the atmosphere. It was so chilled. It was. So, I mean, I usually get quite stressed when I'm go to any kind of, um, even if I'm going to a track day. I wouldn't say I get stressed, but I'm aware that you know there are briefings to go to, and you've got to remember this, that, and the other, and you know there are people who are there to make sure you behave. There's none of that at Chelsea Walsh. I just turned up in the caterham. Um, I was told that I needed to have a helmet. Well, I could do that and be wearing long sleeves. They weren't timing anything. And I just joined the back of the queue in the caterham and, you know, wiggled my way up to the top. And then I came back down again and then I did it again. And it was just, there were, and some of the stuff, you know, there was, you know, there was, you know, people going up in the most extraordinarily beautiful. And Fangio's 300S Maserati was there. Um, there was a bloke in the most gorgeous 8C Alpha. There was a, you know, a beautiful old supercharged Bentley. But there was also some lunatic in a 1960s Fiat 500 with four people on board. <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a lady there um, who is apparently a bit of a local legend um, wearing, you know, a sort of floral dress looking for all the world like the last person you'd ever expect to be f- about to fling a car up the hill climb. And she got in this mini and was just legged it off up this hill. And it was just, it was so funny to watch and it was so incongruous and it was charming. And I just found myself thinking, actually, to have a really good day out at a, what would you call it, a motorsport facility, doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. Go along, take a picnic, you know, if you can take part, take part. If you can't, sit on the bank and watch it all unfold. And it's just, it's supremely relaxing. It's it's a joyous thing to go and do. Um, so I'm going to do a lot more of that. You know, Shelsley Walsh, it's about, it's about an hour and a half from where I live. Um, but also the other thing is that there are great hill climb courses dotted all over the country. Um, and I think they all work on a similarly chilled vibe. Um, and if you haven't done it, I mean, I'm sure that lots of people have gone to go. The Goodwood Festival Speed is an amazing event. But it's these other places. They're very, very different to that. OK, sure, they are hills, but they, you know, they don't come with crowds of 50,000 people uh, and these most amazing paddocks of the world's most valuable cars. It's just, you know, local people um, in interesting, you, you often quite old stuff or purpose built stuff. And it's just I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. And because it's different, it's interesting to me. Um, and it's also, it's just terribly easy. You know, there, there's no procedure. There are no formalities. You just go and do it. And and I really love that about that. So I shall be, yeah, Shelsley Walsh will probably be sick of the sight of me before long. <laughs> yeah, I've done a bit of, a little bit of hill climbing. Um, and it's good fun. I always find that I get to the top 
sort of coursing with adrenaline thinking I could have gone so much faster next time I'll go faster and no matter, no matter how brave I am I always get to the top thinking the same thing so it's a it's an absorbing form of budget motorsport isn't it and you can just keep keep trying and keep going up faster and faster but- but what's, what I find interesting about it, you know, I'm one of these awful people who, unless I happen to be reasonably good at something, and there's not much that I am, um, it's like I once tried to play golf, okay? <laughs> and I was so bad at golf, I got so angry with myself, I've never picked up a club since, um, and I don't think I ever will, because I just know I can't do it. Um, but the thing is, I can't do hill climbs either, I am useless, on a hill because it's all about millimetric precision yeah. and that sort of thing and just being absolutely pin everywhere and that's that's not what i do you know i grew up racing big old sheds around big old tracks and skidding about and you know and if you tried that approach up a hill well you wouldn't make it through the first corner mm. um, and so i feel so out of my depth and yet i love it and that's what i don't really understand it's something i'm really bad at Oh, you know, drumming. That's another thing I'm really bad at, which I love doing. Um, but it's, um, they are the only two things. And I don't, I don't, it just doesn't seem to matter because everyone is so chilled and so relaxed and, you know, no one is taking themselves seriously. So, you know, as long as you have fun on the way up, who cares? It doesn't matter. Um, so, yeah, I love it. I really do. Uh, and I am utterly useless at it. So if you're thinking about doing it and thinking we're going to be a bit useless, well, you're not the only one. Um, because it is, it is a very exacting discipline. And the people who do it really well um, are masters of their art. And it's hugely impressive to see them do it, uh, particularly in the machines that they're in, which, you know, accelerate faster than Formula One cars. Um, you know, down, it's like Formula One cars down a tiny little narrow back lane in the middle of rural Worcestershire. That's exactly what it is. And yeah, it's, uh, it's great to see, great to take part in. And I'm going to do some more. And I think that's probably enough of that fantastic uh okay well just to wrap this episode up let's talk about something very different um because a week or so ago the mercedes amg1 uh was revealed yes this has been a saga hasn't it i remember when was this it must have been you're probably at school when they announced that (laughs) it was either 2015 or 2016 that i went to a motor show and I went in for a one-on-one interview with Tobias, Tobias Mers, excuse me, when he was still there. And he didn't answer any of my questions. And a few minutes into the interview, he just pushed a sort of a brochure over to me and explained that they were putting the Mercedes-AMG Formula One engine into a hypercar. That was how he revealed to us that they were building the, AM, the AMG One. Yeah. Um, and that was six or seven years ago. Yeah. So it has been a saga. And we'll come on to some of the technical details in a moment. But I'm looking at the press release now. And I just want to highlight a couple, um, a couple of lines from it. There's this... Okay, there's a quote here from Philip Scheimer, chairman of the board of management of Mercedes AMG. Over the, over the duration of the development period, many may have thought that the project would be impossible to implement... Including them. Including them. Um, and, and there's more. Let me have a look. The teams in Afaltabak in the UK never gave up and believed in themselves. And they talk about the ups and downs. They talk about the challenges. Um, they talk about the project being partly a curse and a blessing. Uh, so it's really, really interesting that they're acknowledging what a saga it's been, what a difficult what a tremendous challenge this car has been. Often you'd expect a car maker to just gloss over that stuff. But here well, they're love, really addressing it. Uh, I love the quote of the main man, Ola Kalenius, mm. um, who said to a bunch of investors quite recently, I'm sure we must have been drunk when we said yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> they must um, be wondering and, why. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and the problems as I understand them have all been about that funnily enough you know you take this formula and okay it's not exactly the same as the, the engine in back of lewis's car because it only goes to eleven thousand and only this that and the other and it's got to last it's got to last 30, it does thirty thousand miles between rebuilds which frankly is further than any of them is ever going to do um mm. 
Um, but the problem's not that. The problem is not, you know, will it sit in a traffic jam in the middle of Dubai at 50 degree heat? Uh, nor, you know, if you got to it at, you know, after six months when it's minus 20 outside, will it stay? They could do all that. The problem is, I think the actual specific problem was just the emissions test. And specifically within that, you know, there are a certain amount of emissions that a car can't produce more of when it's idling. Now, I think this thing idles at 5,000 revs. <laughs> Or something like that. Yeah. So you can imagine the whole—I mean, the, the the whole new level of arse acery that this, this must have brought them um, to make that thing compliant. But it is, and they have, and you know, fair play to them. It's it, you know, whatever we think of the car and those sorts of cars and its relevance and everything else, we have this conversation, don't we? Every time we talk about some limited edition hypercar, um, just as a piece of engineering. The fact that they have managed to make road legal, not some distant relative of a Formula One engine, which is what, you know, Ferrari did with the F50, you know, made a 4.7 litre V12 out of a three and a half litre V12 and, and changed everything. So this is really is a road going version of the Formula One engine. Um, and as I said, whatever you think of anything else, the fact that they have done that, I think is extraordinary. Mm. It is. And... You're right, it is very, we can't call it exactly the same engine, but it is a version of it. It, all, it still has the split turbo, which was the big innovation that Mercedes yeah. um, brought when these engines were new in 2014. Um, it still has, it still harvests energy, the MGUH and the MGUK that we hear the F1 commentators talking about. It still has those components on it. Um, and there's also, it's still a 1.6 litre V6, of course. And it still has the motor driving the turbocharger. So that yeah. apparently eliminates lag. Yeah. It, well, it they, say that they, they say its throttle response is better than a naturally aspirated, than yeah. if it would be in a naturally aspirated V8. That's astonishing. Yeah. So it's, it's an amazing piece of engineering, that engine. And it's, it's backed up by four electric motors, two on the front axle, the whole the whole lot producing a thousand and sixty three horsepower. Um, it's a it sounds like a pretty mighty thing, doesn't it? Fearsomely complicated. Like you can see why it's taken so long to bring this thing to market. Um, I mean, one thing that leaps out is the weight of the car. I mean, that was going to come to that. That's the problem, isn't it? So it is rather yeah. So a one point six liter mid engine two seat ultimate hypercar should not be weighing five kilograms short of seventeen hundred kilos. Chunky. It just shouldn't. I mean, I did, uh, and Mercedes won't thank me at all for pointing this out. But I did some maths, and you know, its power to weight ratio is really very little different to that of of McLaren P one ten years ago. Mm. yeah interesting yeah it's not that so i think a p1 is 606 horsepower per ton and this is 618 even something as well relatively mainstream as a mclaren 765 lt is 564 horsepower per ton so 618 for a project one 564 it's like 50 horsepower per ton better than a 10 percent better than a 765 lt mm. <sighs> I'm sure it's as light as they can make it, but that, I guess, is the problem when you you do something which is so fiendishly complex and put all the systems on it that are required to make it in any way usable in the public arena and durable. Um, you know, it's one of those things. That it's like sort of giving directions, isn't it? You know, or I wouldn't. You know, if I was going there, I wouldn't start from here. Um, mm. But you know, the start point was, you know, the the one thing that car had to have was an engine to drive from a Formula One car. So that, that was the immovable object, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. And then they had to design the whole of the rest of the car uh, around that one aim. And, you know, you get what you get. Um, and what you get is a car that's five kilos short of 1,700 kilos. Now, actually, you know, they're all sold and I don't suppose any owners will, will care. But there will be people, and I completely understand the point of view, who just go, well, what's so clever about that, you know? Mm. It's a 1.6 litre car, which weighs 
1700 kilograms um you know that's a joke 1.6 liter amazing isn't it it really is i st- i i, I still thing. think that objectively and just in engineering terms i mean obviously i haven't driven it you know it may well be that i never drive it but um i still think the fact they have managed to make a modern formula one engine fit and compliant in a road legal um scenario is an outstanding feat of engineering doesn't mean it's a relevant feat of engineering um but you know there are all sorts of things you know people would say that you know saturn V rocket is not a relevant piece of engineering doesn't mean it's not an incredible piece of engineering and i think it is an incredible piece of engineering. i think what they have done is incredible um and you know others will knock it and i get that but um just on that point alone um i applaud the people who finally were able to make it happen yeah agreed good well hopefully we'll get to drive one at some point um okay well we'll do the listener question in a moment but first of all thank you jbr capital for supporting the podcast by being our partner um if you're looking to buy a new car or a used car any type of car as long as it's worth more than twenty five thousand pounds go and see what jbr capital can do uh on the finance side please remember to rate and review the podcast also follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, so this listener question is from Tom B. Once again, a car maker has massively limited production of a sports car and left many would-be buyers frustrated. This time, it's the Toyota GR86. In the past, it's been Porsche, Ferrari and others. Is it in fact the case that car makers limit supply intentionally to create demand and generate a buzz around their cars? Why not just build enough to meet demand and keep more buyers happy? Well, sometimes they do. Um, you know, it's it's that old it's that old thing, isn't it? Which you know they leave you know they use in the in the theatre world. Always leave them wanting more. You know, what's the what's the perfect number of cars to produce one less than the market wants? Um, because you know you have to make these things desirable. And one way you can make anything desirable is by making it very difficult to get. Um, so there is an element of that. Um, there's also an element of clearly. Um, protecting the brand because um, if you make a smaller number of cars than you can actually sell then the residuals of those cars will obviously remain stronger there's the halo effect Um, you know if you can't buy a mclaren 765lt maybe if you buy a 720s um, and you will still have that you know that reflected stardust sprinkled upon you Um, so I think I think there are all sorts of reasons, and and also there's the absolute terror of getting it wrong. You know, I, I've had conversations with people who've gone, well, you know, we've got this car, you know, we, we just don't know how many we should make, and that what is absolutely true is because fear is a stronger emotion than greed. Every single manufacturer would rather make fewer cars than they can actually sell than end up making more because that's a nightmare. That becomes really really difficult. Um, but the other thing that manufacturers do is the very fact that you say this car is limited in production um, gives that car a cachet. Now, actually, they may sit there and think, how many of these cars, if we didn't limit it, could we sell? And they go, mm, I don't know, well, where are you reckon we can sell 500? So they go, OK, so it's going to be a limited production of 500. So they actually make exactly the same number of cars they would have made if they hadn't limited production. But the moment you call it limited, um, people prick up their ears and go and order one. So they're all sorts of reasons for doing it um which are you know understood quite well um in this industry and i hope um tom that um answers your question yeah i think it does um well thank you tom b for getting your question in please send us your your questions because it's a fun way to end the podcast and we'll do so again next week Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 